Good morning, family. I am uh, glad to see that we still have some remains from the ladies yesterday with the diamonds here in the front. The ladies had a great time, I heard yesterday. Was it, did you enjoy it? Uh, it seems like it went really well and it was a, a great morning. So I watched some of it on uh, YouTube a little bit here and there. So it looked like it really was a great time. I want to ask the executive team if you'll quickly join me on stage. Um, as they're making their way up to stage, I felt it would be good for me just to remind you of who our executive team is, first of all, and then also just of a function they fulfill in our community. This is, as our constitution puts it, our executive team that with me is the, the visionary leaders of the church that determines the ethos, the direction, the culture of the church. Hello, Herman. And... Uh, and uh, so we serve together as a team in that capacity. And one of the things that is also we oversee is the services on a Sunday. And uh, so we have instituted a long time ago that it's been the custom of this church that on a Sunday we have uh, people that are called service directors. And it's their responsibility to, to see to the flow of the Spirit in the service and how the, all the different components fit together and how do we make sure that we are maximizing and attending to what God's Spirit wants to do in the service. And um, while this is our whole executive team, so I think most of you will know Neil Bester, and uh, you don't have to give a shout out and an applause or anything, but I'll just introduce. You can applaud at the end. So we do like at the schools where they say you can applaud at the end, okay. And then Jack and Pam Ferreira, Jack on the left, Pam on the right. Um, those of you that know and love them very much for a long time, and Letitia Dlamini, and Debbie Holloway, and Letzolo Pelesi, and Gerben Groten. So now you can give a good round of applause. Uh, we have a process that in, involves, one of the processes we do is how we actually put a service together for a Sunday, and that begins with two weeks in ago, ago like tomorrow, we'll be actually having our first meeting uh, to talk about the service in two weeks' time, where we spend time with the Lord, we pray, uh, because we've got a series, we already know some of the things that we're going to attend to as we've prayed last term already to plan this series and what we feel the Lord says in that and how we're going to bring that across. But then tomorrow we have a meeting that I facilitate and we have a discussion about upcoming service. What do we, as we closer to it, what do we feel the Lord's saying? And from that meeting, one of the team here takes responsibility for guiding the, the, the preparation for a service through the next two weeks and oversee the coming together of all the different components. And that's the responsibility of a service director. And then on a Sunday, you'll see them. They're the one that, they may not be very visible always, and, but you'll see them every now and then just come and they'll say something and just gently move things along and keep us in, in the right places. And they're also the person that makes some decisions about how do we move and what do we sometimes cut out or include and, and uh, so they have a complete understanding of that. And to do that, we've asked five of our executive team to actually help and serve in that function. So the, you'll see there's three of us that preach. It just happens to be that way. It's not necessarily how it always will work. But Neil, myself, and Letzolo, we preach. So we've asked the other five that they would please serve in this capacity as service directors. So like this morning, Letitia was service director. And um, so you may have known that she does that as a responsibility or you just thought, hey, that's nice. So we do that, and um, we'd like you to just pray for them in this capacity that they also fulfill. And so when they lead, you understand that they're part of our team. We work together. I was very involved with every step of the planning of the process so, and, and everything that we did and how we planned and structured it together. And they represent us as a team because we believe in team ministry and we're together in this. And it's such a privilege to have 
quality leaders in our community that can also serve in this capacity. So can I pray, ask that we pray for them in this also? They've been doing this for a long time, but uh, we felt we just wanted you to also know and be aware of this. So stretch out your hands to them and let me just... Father, we thank you for great leaders in our community in so many different spaces and places, Lord. Thank you for this team also that fulfills its function in the vision and direction of the church and also on Sundays that hold and take responsibility for the services that we think is so important and so valuable. And we really want our times of gathering to bring honor to your name, to be led by your spirit, to be filled with the word and to have a sense of community, Lord. And thank you for people that can just facilitate that, Father, not, not by taking the heavy leadership, but just gently just, just lead the, the community in the time like this. We pray for this team, Father, and both in their functions as executive team, but also in this capacity as service directors, and we bless them, and we thank you for using them, and uh, we continue to pray for them, that they would be led by your Spirit in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, guys. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and I, I, I must say I've really, and I, I always say this because I, when you spend time in the Word, it always does so much for a person, and I've been really enjoying spending time in the Word in, and, and looking at some of these things that we're talking about, about kingdom living and what does that mean, and today I want to carry on. Last week we spoke about our extraordinary king or the extraordinary king, and we spoke about how God is so unusual because he's, he's a God of love, and we gave a bit of definition to that. And today I want to take that one step forward and talk about an extraordinary kingdom. Because we have such an amazing, extraordinary king, we are part of an extraordinary kingdom that is a bit different than any other kingdom you will find. And, and I trust, and, and I need you to trust with me and pray for me, that I would have the ability to somehow bring across this morning something of the, of the fundamentals about how our kingdom is so different and so that we can know what to expect and how to be part of this kingdom and how to live in this kingdom. Because the reality when you're in the kingdom of God, it affects every day of your life. Everything you do gets affected by the kingdom. And you have to orientate yourself and understand what to expect from this kingdom so that you know how to live in this kingdom. And um, it's, it's one of the great challenges of life when you when you feel God just stopping you in your tracks sometimes, and as you're about to do something and God comes and says, no, no, that's not how my kingdom works. I need you to do it in a different way. I can remember many years ago, in one particular situation, I was finding myself with, with a, a, a leadership couple in, in the church, in the South Church at that stage, that, that um, came on staff and uh, we were working together and for a while things were really going well, but then we started developing certain problems and things and, and I knew I had to address and confront this situation and as much as, I mean, that's not what you really want to do and enjoy doing, you have to confront this situation and it was really hard for me and, and I, I did my diligence and worked through and made sure that I had all the facts right and that I wasn't just responding emotionally or out of own frustrations, but really submitted it to other people, got people's perspectives on it, really did the process, you know, properly and, and, and all of that. And then eventually came to a point where I said, okay, now I have to sit with the person and, and discuss with them. And uh, so I called a meeting and as I was preparing for the meeting, you know, making sure that I've got everything right and, you know, that it's proper I was praying for the meeting, and as I was praying, the Lord said to me, I need you, you must wash their feet. And I went, Ugh. Lord, I need to confront them. I need to, you know, lay down the law here a little bit and 
speak about things that are not right. And I don't know if washing feet is quite fits into that situation. But I felt just pressed by the Lord to say, no, you need to wash their feet. And I realized as I was praying through that time that it was for my sake that I had to wash their feet more than for their sake. Because the Lord wanted to make sure that I assumed the right position in dealing with the situation, that I'm coming from a place of servitude and love. And even though I have to bring correction and, and you know, speak about things and bring truth into a situation, am I doing it from a place of humility, from a place of servitude, from a place that says, I, I want this to also be good for you. And uh, as I did that and worked through that and eventually brought that into the situation, it changed the way I came into that confrontation. Isn't that what the kingdom of God does in our lives so often? We think we know. We think we know what to do and how we're going to deal with the situation. And then God's spirit comes and he just cuts across and he says, no, 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 just let me show you how my kingdom operates. And sometimes it's hard for us. It asks difficult things of us. So it's so important in life that we understand this extraordinary kingdom and how different this kingdom is. And I thought perhaps a way to explain that is to make use of um, how the Jewish people grew up and their expectation of the kingdom and how when Jesus came, he was so different than what they expected that eventually it became a big problem for them. So I, I trust that this will help us in understand just a little bit of the difference of the kingdom. Now, I think most of us understand the history of the Jewish people. And from the Old Testament, we know how the, the Jewish nation went through so many struggles. If you think of Egypt and being taken into slavery in Egypt, and eventually after 400 years, they got rescued and then taken to the promised land and then having to fight wars for the promised land and then eventually losing the promised land and getting taken into exile and, and their cities destroyed and their temples destroyed and, and their nationhood destroyed. And they, and they found themselves in such difficult places, so oppressed and so, so looked down upon in, over many times and, and uh, how they struggled with this as a nation. Something that added to their struggle as a nation was this idea that they were God's people, God's nation. And this expectation that they had that if they're God's people, if they're the apple of his eye, if they're the chosen one, the sons of Abraham that has been called by God to, to be a blessing to the earth. And how does this work that this nation that is supposed to be God's people is going through so much struggle and suffering? And this kept on in their, in their, in their journey as a nation really being difficult for them. But because they were God's nation, God would speak to them from time to time, very regularly through prophets or leaders, and keep on reminding them that, that I've got a plan with you. I'm going some with you. Don't worry. I've, I'm building towards something. Just, just keep going. And God would use prophets and, and, other, and kings and leaders at times to speak to them, to say to them that you are my people. Just, just hang on. And, and one of the places, and I just there's two scriptures that I want to show you where God did this with the people. And I'm using these two for specific reasons, and, and you'll understand later why. But in Psalm 2, a psalm was written, a poem that was later put in song, that became a song that the nation of Israel would sing. And, and from generation to generation, as they were going through the hundreds of years of struggle and suffering and, and trying to keep hope and being an oppressed people and a, and, and, and a people that is, you know, just life is hard, they would remind themselves through songs and poems. They would say to each other, just God's, God's got a plan. Just hold on. And Psalm 2 was one of these songs. And can I say it like this? This is like a struggle song that they had, where they had in their hearts and every nation across the world, every people that has ever gone through a struggle, 
will have struggle songs, songs that they, that they sang and that as a community to encourage and strengthen them and that, that would sometimes be hard songs. And I know even in our context, we struggle sometimes with these songs because they, they speak about the enemy and overcoming the enemy as, as you perceive the enemy to be. And, and the nation of Israel had songs like that. And Psalm 2 was a song like this. Let me read it for you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them with pieces like pottery. Through a song like this, the, the people were saying, the nations may rise up against us, and they may think they're so powerful, but our God has a plan, and He will crush them, and He will take away their power and their authority, and He's going to do it in a specific way. And this specific way that they saw how God was going to restore the nation and give it its strength and its pride was through this concept that is mentioned in verse 2. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed. The nation of Israel developed this idea, this thought, this expectation that later became definitive for them as a nation, that one day God is going to raise up his anointed and his anointed will become the leader that will restore the nation. He will become the king that will rule the nation of Israel. And under his rulership, he will restore the nation to its rightful place. This king will be anointed by God. He will be endowed with power by God. He will be given the authority and the power of God to be able to do this job. Because the nation is so small and insignificant, they will never be able to rule. But with God's power represented and acting through this person, this person will lead the nation of Israel. This person is going to be a political, economic, social leader that will rally the nation together and, will, and bring the nation back in, and restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place, which for many of them was actually that Israel would become the world superpower. Everybody would bow to Israel. This is their expectation. And they had a name for this, this person. Now, in our culture, we sometimes repeat the same in story form, we have the same idea. How many of you know the Matrix movies? And in the Matrix movies, there's this idea of life is terrible because we're living in the Matrix and the machines. But one day, one will rise up and he will change everything. And in the Matrix, he's called Neo, the one, the special one. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, you may think in Star Wars, it's the same. It's the, it's the empire ruling and the empire is destroying the world, the life and life is hard. But one day one will come and that one will be endowed with the force and will take rulership and, and change everything. And that is Luke Skywalker. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is near or Luke Skywalker, please. Just let's not get that confused here this morning. I'm just, it's a, it's a similar kind of idea. The nation of Israel in their culture and in their, in their scriptures, they had a name for this person, the Messiah, the Messiah. And therefore, when you read this word where it says against his anointed, that is the word Messiah. Often we, trans we know we're more familiar with the word Christ, 
Messiah, Christ is the same word. One is Hebrew, one is Greek, the anointed one. The one that will be given power by God. The one that will be like Samson, that will be like Joshua, like Moses, like David. In the, in the bloodline of David that would come and rule the nation of Israel. Now, in their expectation of this Messiah, they did not think this Messiah would be God himself. They didn't think in terms of that this Messiah would be a divinity. They thought it would just be a human being, but really anointed by God, empowered by God, that would externally, remember like, like Samson, when the Bible tells in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come upon Samson, and then he would destroy the, the Philistines. In that same way, the power of God will come on this person, and this person would rule and restore Israel, the anointed one, the Messiah. Another time that this prophecy, this person is spoken of, and it's many times in the Old Testament you can read. But in Isaiah 42, verse 1, one of the nation's great prophets, Isaiah, says the following, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Here is my servant, my anointed one, the Messiah, my chosen one. In him I am well pleased, or in him I delight. So this became part of the story of the nation of Israel. Like I said, generation to generation, they would tell this to one another. They would learn the prophecies. They would sing the songs, they read the poems, and continuously build this, this expectation. Just keep the faith. The Messiah is coming, and he will change everything. So as the nation was carrying this, they came into a period at after the end of the Old Testament in terms of the writings, for 400 years there was no prophecy, there was no word of God, things grew quiet. And every now and then if you read the history, somebody would rise up and say, he's the Messiah, and they would have a revolt and a battle, and then that battle would be, would be squashed by the ruling authorities, by the Romans or whoever was ruling over them, and, and then they would go, okay, so that wasn't the Messiah. But in that time there was no word of God. Until... At some point, something started happening. One night, a star appeared in the sky, and the word started coming out. The time of the Messiah has come. A, a man was born by the name of John, and he was given the spirit of Elijah. And he started going around the nation, and he started calling the people of Israel and started saying to them, the, the time of the Messiah is at hand. Prepare yourselves. The Messiah is coming. You've got to be ready. The kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is here. Are you in? And he would preach repentance, and he would say to the people, stop living like Gentiles. Become the people of God. And, and one of the ways that he would display and they would display that they would become pure and ready for the Messiah and be prepared for his coming was they would get baptized. So he would baptize thousands and thousands of people in that time. It became a time of national revival, a time of, of extreme hope that flared up in the nation. The Messiah is coming, the anointed one that's going to come and rule and restore God's people and throw over, the. and particularly in their time, they were going being crushed by the Romans that would come and overthrow the Roman government and restore us. It's here, people. So the people were starting to live with that expectation. So imagine you're a Jewish person in that time, in, the, in, in, in Bethlehem, in, in, in Galilee, in that area. And this is stirring. There's everywhere you go, it's in every newspaper. Everybody's talking about, you know, preparing, getting ready. The Messiah is coming. 
You can understand people are starting to look around and saying, is he the Messiah? Is that, is that, is that the Messiah? They're starting to wonder. So one day, you, you decide you're going to go and watch people prepare for the Messiah's coming. You, you're standing by the Jordan River, and you're seeing John the Baptist come, and, and he's preaching fiery, and, and people are coming into the water, and they're getting baptized, and they're getting ready because the Messiah's coming. And as you're standing there observing it, suddenly the mood changes. Something in the air happens, and you realize this is, there's something different going on here. And you see a man step out of the crowd into the water, and, and John the Baptist stops. You know, he would be baptizing, just hundreds of people, just baptizing. And he stops, and he looks up at this man, and he says something of, I can't baptize you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. And the man says to him, no, you must baptize me. It's the right thing to do. And you go, okay, now what's this all about? And you watch the man come, and, and John the Baptist, with great humility, baptizes and as he brings the man up out of the water, something happens. Something very significant. In Mark 1 verse 9 we read, In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now because you're a Jewish person, and you've grown up with the prophecies and the songs, you, you have in your mind that one day the anointed one, this Messiah will come, and when he comes, the Spirit of God will descend upon him. And here you see this man come up out of the water, and in that moment, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes down on this man, and you go, is this, is this the prophecy? Am I really seeing what we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, what we've been hearing is going to happen? Am I seeing it happen right here in front of my eyes? Not only does the dove come down, but there's lightning. It, it gets told in some of the other gospels. And then a voice thunders out of heaven. And the voice says this, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, you and I, we read those words and we go, oh, that's so great, that's so nice. A Jewish person hears those words and they hear two direct quotations in the Hebrew language from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 being put together in one sentence. And what they're hearing is heaven proclaiming the Messiah is here. This is the Messiah. That's what the Jewish person heard that day. The one we've been waiting for the one that is going to be anointed with the power of God to change everything. Here he is. I'm looking at him. That's him. Jesus standing there. You are the anointed one. And I don't know what they did. The scripture doesn't tell us, but there must have been like a feverish just excitement in the nation. He's here. Can you believe it? We get to live in the time. Where it's going to happen. The Romans are going to be overthrown. Everything's going to change. We're going to come to our rightful place. What a joy. What an excitement. There he is. Imagine Jesus walking down the street and people pointing, saying, there he is. There he, there, that's him. That's the Messiah. Because so, such a clear sign was given. Perhaps they ran up to Jesus and take selfies with him. 
Messiah, Messiah, for selfie. You know, wow, Jesus is the Messiah. And as you know the story from the baptism, Jesus goes through the desert, goes through the temptation, and from there, it's the beginning of his stepping into public space. And people starting becoming aware of him. Yes, the Messiah. So Jesus starts doing things. And the people are looking and expectant, and they're saying, wow, here it is, guys, it's happening. The, the kingdom, we're going to see it right here. We're going to see the kingdom come. Yes, and they're like, the kingdom. And, and Jesus starts doing miracles, and they go, wow, he is the anointed one. Look at that. He can, he can raise people from the dead. He can heal sick people. Wow, he can feed thousands with just a little basket full of food. He must be the Messiah. At some points, the people got so excited that they wanted to take him to Jerusalem and put him on the throne and, and, and crown him the king. Get the priests to anoint him and say, he's here, the king is here. But every time they try and do that, Jesus slips out the back door. He, he, he gets away from the crowd. He, he doesn't allow them to do that. Even at times, and we'll see it just now, when, when he heals somebody, he says, don't tell anybody. Why does he do this? Because he's the Messiah. The king is here. But then he also started doing some strange things. Some weird things, according to their concepts. That, that started them to go, um, is he really the Messiah? Because if he does that, I don't know if he can be the Messiah. I, I don't think he has our best interests at heart. I don't think he's, he's with the program. He's not living up to the expectations. This kingdom that he represents doesn't look like the kingdom I want to be part of. He started doing some things that, that opened up a debate and a discussion. And the, and, the, and the pointing started going from, yes, there he is, the Messiah, to, do you think he's the Messiah? And camp started divide, the developing. Some were saying he's the Messiah. Others were saying, he's definitely not the Messiah. A lot were saying, I don't know. Just got to wait and see. I, I don't know. And some, some people, even close to him, started asking. In Luke 7, we read this, verse 18. John, John's disciples, John the Baptist, the guy who said, this is the Messiah, the guy who baptized him. Some of his disciples went to him, to John, and, and told him about some of these things Jesus was doing. And he started hearing the reports, and he went. He called two of them, of his disciples. He sent them to the Lord, and he said, ask the Lord Jesus this question. Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? He started doubting. Because Jesus wasn't living up to his expectation anymore. Jesus wasn't presenting himself as the king, as the Messiah. Now, there's many things Jesus did that caused them to pause and to wonder. Let me just give you two examples. One day, Jesus was in Capernaum. And a Roman centurion came to Jesus. Now, a Roman centurion is the oppressor. He's the, the hated ones. The Jewish people had no time for them. This was the symbol of what is not the kingdom of God. This is what I want to get away from so I can get into God's kingdom is him and his kind. A guy like that comes to Jesus. A centurion, he's the, he's the, he's the authority over a, 
a hundred soldiers. And some of the people in the area could probably point to some of the things he's done and how he's, how he's been unkind. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, Lord Jesus, I have a problem. I need your help. His daughter. And uh, he says to Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. I'm a man under authority and have others that are under my authority. And I understand you're a king. You have people above you. You have people that's under you. You can command somebody and they will come and do your bidding for you. Just say, just say the word and it'll be fine. You don't have to come to my house. Now Jesus' response to this is remarkable if you understand the expectation of the people. In verse 10 of Mark 8, of Matthew 8, sorry, Jesus says, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying? Are you understanding what Jesus is saying to them? He's saying to them, This man, this oppressor, is showing me the kingdom. I'm seeing the kingdom of God happening right here with this man, more than what I'm seeing it with some of you who think you're in the kingdom of God. And they said, you cannot say that. that is, you, how is that possible? It, it's not right that you say that. It is not fair. You cannot say that. He carries on. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying to them, guys like this, like this Roman soldier that you think is outside of the kingdom, will come and sit at the table of your forefather Abraham, will be in the midst of the kingdom, while some of you are going to be thrown out. Surely he can't be the Messiah. He can't be our king. I mean, he must represent our interests. He must look after us. He must position us to come into the rightful place that God has called us to be. How can he say things like this? He doesn't care about us. He's just like the, the rest. He's just like the others. He just wants power. He, he just wants to hobnob with those that are in power. He, he's not one of us. Another time Jesus did something that really they struggled with. In Luke 19, we read the story of a very short man, short in stature, a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, a guy that again represents for them a sinner man. He's like, he is so not the kingdom of God. He is, he's the problem. He's the one we must get rid of. If we're going to see God's kingdom come, him and his cronies have to be destroyed. This guy. Here's Jesus is coming to town. He's so desperate to see Jesus that he climbs in a tree. Now, a man of his stature would normally get a servant to climb in the tree for him. Not his physical stature, his position in the community, his wealth. But he himself is so desperate to see Jesus that he climbs up a tree so that he could get to see Jesus and perhaps get Jesus' attention. The Jewish people say, you stupid person. How are you wasting your time? You're embarrassing. You're making a fool of yourself. Jesus is not going to come and speak to you. You are not worthy of his attention. You are not worthy of him spending any time with you. You 
get away. This, has got, this is our thing. It's got nothing to do with you. They don't climb the trees. They just stand there. Jesus is coming. Of course, Jesus would want to speak to them because they are his people. Don't you love what Jesus does in verse 5? When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Not I want to or I will, I must. You have arrested my attention. You have deserved, you have, you have won the prize. I must come to your house today. A guy like you, I must come and spend time. I want to see what you're all about. Now to the people there said, how is this possible? He can come to any of our homes. Some of the Pharisees were there, some of the richer people saying, you know, probably with nice invitations, Jesus, come to our house. We'll, you know, of course you want to be with us. Jesus says, I don't want to go to your house. I'm going to go to his house. All the people saw this in verse 7 and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, when they use the word sinner here, they don't just meaning morally that he's a sinner. They're meaning he is an evil person. He's an oppressor. He's a, he's a problem. Jesus shouldn't be with him. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here, I, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Wow. Jesus is saying to him, You are getting the kingdom. This guy is so desperate for the kingdom and for Jesus to be his king, that he says, I'll, I'll give up half of what I own. And if anybody can you know, say I did them in, I'll pay them four times what I took from them. I want to be in your kingdom. This is what grabbed Jesus' heart. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come. You've become part of the kingdom. Now again, the Jewish people that expected something different when, what the heck is going on? Now, this is not that the problem was because they were Jewish. Because there were Jewish people turning to Christ. There were even Pharisees, uh, leaders of the, of the scribes and of the law that turned towards Jesus. So the issue wasn't that they were a Pharisee or not a Pharisee, but there was something else that Jesus was starting to say qualifies you for the kingdom. Something other that he was expecting, that his kingdom is different than other kingdoms. And how do you get into this kingdom? And, and he was busy saying to the Jewish people, you thought you knew, but I'm telling you, you don't know. You better listen to me, otherwise you're going to miss the kingdom. And I don't want you to miss the kingdom. His heart was for them. He wanted them first to get the opportunity to be the kingdom because they carried the story of the kingdom. He wanted them to come in first, but he needed to, um, them to understand that there's, there's something, adjustment they have to make. And this was a big adjustment. Even once when Jesus was with his disciples, he asked them the question. Remember this when he said to them, who do the people say that I am? Now he wasn't doing a popularity contest. He wasn't checking how many followers he has on Instagram or Facebook likes or anything like that. Are the people talking about me? You know, am I, am I, you know, am I hot now at the moment? He wasn't doing that. He was asking the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Are there people that believe I'm the Messiah? Or, or what do they say? 
The disciples answered and they said, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. They were saying the general temperature of the people is they believe you're somebody special, but you're not the Messiah. They've started to come to this conclusion that you're not the Messiah. You're not the one we've been waiting for. You look like it, but you're not the one. Because of all these funny things that you're doing, we think we recognize you've got authority, we recognize you've got power, but you're not the one. And then Jesus said, and who do you say that I am? And listen to the words of Peter. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Lord, we don't understand you. We don't quite get a handle on you, but we recognize you are the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one. And this is a key moment for them where they're starting to say, now tell us what we should be expecting. We thought we knew what we should be expecting, but can you show us what we should be expecting? And from this point, Jesus starts telling them some really fundamental things. And we're not going to look at those this morning about how the kingdom is. And he talks to them about leadership. And he says how in the kingdom, a leader is the one that serves. And he, and he talks about this upside down, different kingdom. He's starting to orientate them, re-educate them about the kingdom. But it is very hard. In John 18, no, sorry, let me, let me go away from there. As they were going with Jesus, they would see many different experiences about how this kingdom was so extraordinary, so different than they expected. But eventually, the Jewish leadership became convinced that Jesus was a problem. He was a charlatan at best, a liar. That at best, he was trying to gain popularity and presenting himself to be the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah. He was just a liar, and he was deceiving the people. That was the best case scenario for them. Worst case scenario is he was sent by Satan. He was a son of Satan himself. And they started being convinced of the second because of one thing that Jesus started doing that really upset them. Because remember, their expectation was the Messiah was going to be a normal guy that filled with God's power. But Jesus started saying not that he was a normal guy, but that he was the son of God. And he was acting like he was the son of God. In this thing particularly that he started forgiving people their sins. And remember, every time Jesus said, I forgive your sins, the Pharisees would get like their minds would, they'd freak out. Because how can only God can forgive sins? So not only was Jesus not the Messiah they thought, he was a claiming to be far more than the Messiah they sought. And if that was the case, they were in real trouble. And so the Jewish leaders started saying, this guy, we need to deal with him. We need to get rid of him. This is a big problem. Because if he stirs up the people, but he's not the Messiah, the Romans are going to come down and they're going to crush us and we're just going to go through more pain and suffering. And this guy can't help us because he's not the Messiah. So we must deal with him. So they started concocting and they started looking for witnesses and people that could testify against Jesus. And then they had a trial and they arrested Jesus. But the people that came and, and spoke about Jesus, they couldn't find anything to find Jesus guilty. But then at some point, uh, sorry, I've, at 
In Mark 14, verse 61, we read, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and, co and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, not only am I the Messiah, I am God. Look at the response. The high priest tore his clothes why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. He's not the Messiah. We, we thought we're getting there. We got so excited. But he's not the one. He's a dangerous man. We need to deal with this situation. So Jesus gets crucified. This is so bizarre. For the disciples, so disorienting, they don't know what to do. Jesus appears before Pilate and has a conversation with Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king? Jesus keeps quiet first and eventually says, I am who you say. And then they have this weird conversation about the truth. And, and, and Pilate ends up and he asks Jesus and he says, who can know the truth? And Jesus responds with nothing because at that point, Pilate doesn't want to know the answer. He's just irritated. But it's so amazing that he asks the question of who is the truth to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But at this point, we see the complete separation. Jesus gets put in the category of He's not the son of God. He's not the Messiah. He's a complete liar. He's just deceiving us. We're going to carry on. But the disciples saw things that was difficult for them to give up on Jesus. How is this kingdom so different? How is this kingdom so extraordinary that it is so hard for the people who were waiting for it to get hold of it, that couldn't see it, that couldn't understand it, that couldn't grasp it, because Jesus was so unexpected, so other than what they thought. And I think it's really valuable for us if we can understand that. And let me tell you a story, and then I'm finished, to try and show that difference that was so hard for them. In this week, I was at a seeking meeting on Wednesday evening, just came and spent some time with the Lord. And as I was praying in the seeking meeting and just there as, as part of the people, I, I had a picture of myself coming to worship at the feet of Jesus. And I just had a moment where I was, just the desire in my heart was just Jesus. I just want to tell you that I love you. And I saw myself at the feet of Jesus weeping and just, just weeping on his feet and just saying, Lord, I love you so much. This is a vision that, you know, this is just sort of my imagination experience that I had. And as I was doing this, at a, at, at a moment, I felt as if in my vision, the Lord Jesus looked at me. And I mean, we were close now, and he looked at me. And at that moment when he looked at me, I pulled away from him. Because I felt if he looks at me, he's going to see my sin. He's going to see that my proclamation of love for him is probably not as complete as what I'm making it out to be. He's going to see the mistakes. He's going to see me for who I really am. And in that moment, I, I just pulled away in that prayer moment. And my mind went to Luke 7. In Luke 7, we are told the story 
of Jesus one day being invited into a Pharisee's house. And a Pharisee says, come and have a meal with me. Now, the, the idea of the Pharisee was typical of the time. He was to say, Jesus, I want to spend time with you so that I can see for myself and judge whether you are the Messiah or not. Come and spend some time with me. Come and let me have a close look at you. So here Jesus comes and he sits in the house of the, of the Pharisee and he's going to be served a meal. Now, you remember how they would eat in those days. They would recline in a circle. So generally what they would do is lie on their left side with their heads pointed inward and their feet pointed outward. And because, remember, those rooms didn't have lighting like we have electricity, the, lit, the area that was lit was lit by the table and the, the lamps, and that would generally be where, where the light is and where the, the people would converse. And so there they were, these guys, and they were lying around the table eating, and probably questions and discussions about the Messiah and I don't know what. And as they're in that position discussing... The Bible says a woman, doesn't say much more about her, it just says a woman from that town that was full of sin. Doesn't even bother to describe her sin for us, he just says she was full of sin. Found her way into the room. She probably snuck in the door, went through the, by the side of the wall where it wasn't so light, where people couldn't really see so well, snuck in the shadows and found the feet of Jesus. And as the men were talking in the room and it was nice, they started hearing a, a little bit of a sound that was unfamiliar to them. They started hearing the weeping of a woman. And here was this woman crying on the feet of Jesus and, and washing his feet with her hair. And she was just loving Jesus. And then she did something that really drew everybody's attention. She took a jar of, of perfume and she broke it and threw it on the feet of Jesus. And that whole room started smelling. And if she wanted to be not noticed, then suddenly everybody noticed her at that point. Everybody turned and looked at what is going on here. And this woman, full of sin, comes into this place. Remember, the Pharisee is judging, is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? So she comes into that place. The Pharisee's response is this. He says, man, now I'm really convinced he's, he's not the Messiah. He's not even a prophet. Because if he was, he would know who was touching his feet and he wouldn't allow it. He would know that she was full of sin and he wouldn't allow her to touch his feet. Can you see he's judging Jesus? He puts himself in the place where he says, it is my job to judge the Messiah. He's not in the place where he's saying, I want the Messiah to judge me. I'm judging the Messiah. And this woman comes and she pours out what she has at the feet of Jesus to love Jesus. Now, when I read this and I thought of the experience I just had in prayer, I thought, what an amazing situation. Here a woman full of sin trusts Jesus so much that she's prepared to come into a Pharisee's house, the last person she would want to get close to, that she would come into a Pharisee's house, break through all the social obstacles, norms, standings, and everything that should be done. She breaks through all of that just to come and lie at the feet of Jesus. She says, I don't care if everybody sees who I am and my sin and my brokenness, I want to be with Jesus. Not only do I want to be with Jesus, I want to honor him for who he really is. Therefore, Jesus says to the Pharisee, he says, you know, who will be more, appreciate more the forgiveness of sin? He who sins a lot or he who sins a little? 
the Pharisee says, of course, he who sins a lot. Then Jesus says, you know, since I've come into your house, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. You didn't treat me as a very special guest. You gave me very little honor. You, you didn't receive me as a person worthy. You actually received me and you looked down upon me. That culturally was what he was saying. You looked down upon me. You put yourself in a position where I was less than you. I was not somebody worth you really giving your best to. You were actually looking down on me and you were thinking you're better than me. But here comes this woman, this sinful, broken woman that you would point to and say, that is not the kingdom of God. And she comes and honors me and treats me as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the Messiah. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Then Jesus turns and he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Right there. Those were some of the experiences that the disciples had with Jesus where they saw the kingdom, an extraordinary kingdom. Our kingdom is extraordinary in this, that it has place for everybody. Nobody's excluded. The oppressed and the oppressor, the poor and the wealthy, the lame and the upright, the sick and the healthy, the young, the old, Everybody can come to the kingdom. There's no exclusion. Jew and Gentile all come. Everybody can come to the kingdom. There's just one thing that you must do to enter the kingdom. You must see Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And you must put him in that position. That's the only thing. That's the only point of separation. It's that. The sinful woman could come and find entrance into the kingdom because she came to Jesus and saw him for who he was. Her sins could be forgiven. The Roman could come. The tax collector could come. The Pharisee could come. The Gentile can come. As long as I come before Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. That's the only thing that excludes me from the kingdom is my sinfulness. I'm a sinner. But I'm not going to withhold my sin from you anymore. I'm going to trust you with my sin. I'm going to expose my sin to you. I'm going to give you full access to my sinfulness and say, here I am, a complete sinner. Thank you, Lord. And allow Jesus to forgive me and to, like he said to Zacchaeus, salvation, today salvation has come. But if we use any other line, any other distinction, we will miss the kingdom. It's only that. That is the great point of humility for all of us to come to. It's only if we humble ourselves that we can inherit the kingdom. And the greatest point of humility is to say, yes, Lord, I am outside of your kingdom. I'm a sinner. And then to look upon the cross and to see Jesus that has forgiven my sin. This is our extraordinary kingdom. That our Savior, our Messiah, our anointed one, our rider on the white horse, our general of the armies came to forgive our sins. This is the battle that he fought. This is the victory that he won. Our sin has been 
forgiven. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your story is, what your sin is. Just come to the feet of Jesus. I wonder if we can stand this morning, if you wouldn't mind standing with me. I need to pray a prayer specifically this morning because I must be honest with you, I found it quite difficult to how to put this message together and to present it to you in a way that really speaks to you and may grab your heart. And I must say, I've really wrestled with it this week. And I don't even at this point in time feel like I've done a good enough job. But I want to pray and trust the word of the Spirit. And that the Lord would be speaking to each of us right now. And that His word would find life within us and germinate within us. Is that okay? Because ultimately, it's His word that will not return to Him empty. Father, I want to pray for us this morning in this place. Lord, we want to be Your people. We want to be in your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us by your spirit the understanding, the revelation, the insight, and the knowledge. Not with our minds merely, but with our beings to grasp hold of the truth here today of your kingdom. This extraordinary kingdom that is so hard to describe because it is so different and unusual. I pray for each of us, Lord, that the kingdom will grab hold of our hearts. That we will not be like others that think we understand. But that we would let you inform our expectation. That we would allow you, Lord Jesus. And that we would all be able to come in humility before you and just say, Jesus, it's all about you. It's about you, Lord Jesus. I want to invite you this morning, if you... Have the, the need, the desire to come and say, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And then when I say I'm a sinner, I, I include myself in that. That's no statement of judgment on any person. It's a statement of truth. It just is what it is. I'm a sinner. We're not going to spend time debating about what sin is or not. I'm a sinner. But thank you, Jesus, that I can come to you and trust you with my sin, with my brokenness. And that you will heal me and restore me. That my sin is no longer a reason to keep me out of your kingdom. You have dealt with that. So if this morning that is your desire, as I end the service now, I would like to ask you, just come to the front. Our elders and pastors and our team will be here. They want to pray with you. They'll spend a bit of time with you. Just help you enter the kingdom of God. By just coming to that place of humility before Him. We've all done it. Continue to do it every day. So Lord, if there's any person that needs to and has the opportunity today, we pray that you would strengthen them by your Spirit right now in Jesus' name. Can I ask the team to come to the front? And any person that wants to respond, just come. Every Sunday, it's our privilege to pray for people. To see God's kingdom come. Jesus instructed us. He said, pray this. Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see your kingdom come, Lord. In all of our lives, let your kingdom come. 
If you want prayer this morning for us to stand with you, to see God's kingdom in your life, just come and we'll, we'll spend time with you. We pray with you. Any need you have, let us pray with you that God's will be done for healing, for deliverance. For those of you that need work and provision, come and let us pray with you. Let us see God's kingdom come. If you want to be a more effective worker in the kingdom, to say, Lord, I want to see your kingdom come through my life. Let us pray with you. Let us pray for your, just your everyday life that God's kingdom will come. Lord, we just love you so much. We just put you in the middle. We put you first. We come today in that same sense and we come and pour out our love at your feet, Lord Jesus. And we say, you are worthy of it all, Lord. I pray your blessing on each person that has been here in this room today, those that watched on YouTube or listened on the radio. I speak your blessing over us. Let us be your kingdom people in Jesus' name. Amen. There will also be baptism taking place in the uh, function hall. And remember, those of you that are new visitors, you can come to the ministry area to my left and meet some of our people. The Lord bless you. Have a great week. Just allow those that want to come for prayer to come to the front and have that opportunity.